This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for July 3rd, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 16 through 19 and 25 through 30. The message is by Father Eric Coons. When I was an evangelical pastor in the free church tradition, the preaching schedule was influenced heavily by the civil calendar. So I routinely preached sermons with themes corresponding to Mother's Day and Father's Day, Valentine's Day and Labor Day, Thanksgiving, and yes, I hate to admit, even Halloween. I never really felt comfortable with this tradition, but I didn't realize how bad things were until I was browsing one day in a Christian bookstore in Grand Rapids. Two men, obviously pastors, came into the store, and as they passed me, I heard one of them say, I'm having trouble finding material for my sermon for Groundhog Day. <laughs> I think he said it tongue-in-cheek, but whether he was serious or cynical, it proves my point. So, when I became an Anglican, I was delighted to identify with a tradition where the preaching themes are drawn for the most part from the lectionary, and that schedule is tied to the church year calendar. So the sermons relate to Advent and Pentecost, not Columbus Day and Earth Day, with one notable exception. American Anglicans love the 4th of July. I suppose that comes out of the spirit of national identity that gave rise to this tradition in the first place. Anglicanism arose in the 16th century, after all, out of a dispute between the King of England and the Pope over which one really was head of the English church. In the early days after the break with Rome, Church of England clergy pledged loyalty both to the bishop and to the monarch. That, of course, made life difficult for Anglican clergy here in America at the time of the Revolution, and it led to the name change from the Church of England in this country to the Protestant Episcopal Church. That tension is gone now, and we gladly identify ourselves both as Anglican Christians and as proud Americans. And there is no day on which American pride is on display more than on the 4th of July. Believe me, I understand that impulse. I'm a proud American, too. Like most Americans, I get all teary-eyed when one of our Olympic athletes wins a gold medal and they play the national anthem at the award ceremony. I don't really care for soccer. I don't like games that can end in a 0-0 tie. But last year, when the U.S. team was competitive in the first rounds of the World Cup, I was hanging on every penalty kick. I love my country. I'm not a world traveler, but I have traveled outside the U.S. enough to know how good it feels to come home. And like most Americans, I'm grateful for the system of representative democracy based on the Constitution by which this nation is governed. It is not a perfect system, and justice is not as fairly and equitably administered and every situation as we would like, but it is head and shoulders above whatever system comes in second. Still, national pride can be a problem for a Christian, even if the nation is good and the pride is justified. We Christians, after all, have dual citizenship that can produce at times competing loyalties. As Americans, we're citizens of the United States, but as Christians, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. The New Testament is clear that Christians are to be model citizens in both realms. It's also clear, however, about where our ultimate loyalties lie. With your indulgence, then, I'd like to step outside the lectionary texts for today in order to look very briefly 
at a portion of Scripture which speaks to the question of how we Christians should regard our national citizenship and how we should relate to our national government. I don't have to step very far away from the lectionary readings for today, however, since the epistle reading was taken from Romans 7, and I want to focus our attention on the first seven verses of Romans 13. So let me read those verses, if you will. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Romans 13, 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, we need to set this passage in its context in the book of Romans. Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christian community in the city of Rome in the middle of the first century. Paul had never been to Rome at the time he wrote the book, the letter. He had reasoned with philosophers in Athens, the birthplace of Western philosophy. He had preached salvation by grace through faith in Christ in the shadow of the great temple of Diana in Ephesus. He had delivered the good news about Jesus, the crucified Son of God, to a society corrupted by the vile influence of decadent Corinth. But he had never been to Rome. Rome, the capital city of the empire, the center of culture and art and commerce, the seat of the government, the home of the emperor. In this city, to this city, where the name of the game was power, Paul wanted to preach the gospel, which he had called in Romans 1, the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And so, in preparation for what he hoped would be a visit in the not-too-distant future, he wrote to the Christians in Rome in crisp syntax and flawless logic, a concise summary of the gospel and its impact on the lives of those who would accept it by faith. In chapters 1 to 3, he made the case that everybody needs the gospel because everybody has sinned. Then in chapter 4, using the example of Abraham, Paul made it clear that the benefits of the gospel come to us solely on the basis of our faith. Furthermore, in chapter 5, he reminds us that being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Chapter 6 teaches that as believers in Christ, we no longer have to live under the power of sin. At times, though, like he wrote in chapter 7, from which our epistle reading was taken this morning, at times we'll feel frustrated, wanting to do right, yet lacking the strength to do it. And that's when we need to be reminded, as he did in Romans 8, of the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. In chapters 9 through 11, he drew on his background as a Jew to illustrate how Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah opened the door for Gentiles to experience new life in Christ. 
there is a notable change in tone and focus beginning in chapter 12. In chapters 1 through 11, his emphasis was on right belief. Beginning with chapter 12, his focus changes to right behavior. And that's the theme of the last five chapters of the book of Romans. Christian behavior that is consistent with Christian belief. Here's the way chapter 12 begins to show the change in focus and emphasis. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, and we might insert there, which he has been writing about in all of the previous 11 chapters, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now the value of human life in first century Rome could change from day to day depending on the whim of the emperor. When Paul told those Roman Christians to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, he was reminding them that in many ways their lives were in the emperor's hands. When they read Paul's words in Romans 12.1, they might very well have imagined a literal sacrifice, the surrender of their bodies and their lives as a consequence of their faith. The emperor, when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, was Nero. Nero was 15 when he came to the throne in AD 54. When he was 22 years old, he had his mother murdered. Three years later, he murdered his wife. A great fire swept through Rome in the year 64. Whoever was responsible, and many think it was Nero himself, he blamed it on the Christians. Nero had Christians tortured and burned publicly. And although the persecution was limited to the Christian community in Rome, it was intense and severe. Paul had finally made it to Rome by that time, 64 AD, but under circumstances far different than he had hoped or expected when he wrote his letter to the Romans. He was, in fact, and probably for the second time, a prisoner of Rome, in bonds for the crime of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most historians believe that both Peter and Paul, whose combined feast day we celebrated this past week on June 29th, both lost their lives during the persecution of Christians in Rome under Nero. I think this background and the overview of the book of Romans are necessary in order to hear Paul's words in Romans 13, 1-7 in their proper historical context. Paul was not writing theory in a vacuum. He was writing to Christians in a specific historical, geographical, and political situation. And his words about their attitude toward the powers that be are not part of some radical political tract. They're part of the details which he offers to illustrate what he means when he calls on these Christians to present their bodies as living sacrifices. So, to Christians living under the erratic and sometimes violent authority of Emperor Nero, Paul writes in the first verse of Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Considering the word he uses there, that we translate subject or submit, depending on the version, Paul's not calling for slavish, unthinking, uncritical obedience. What he calls for is willing, intelligent allegiance to the governing authorities for reasons that he will then specify. First of all, he says, we are to be subject to the government because God 
originates, establishes, and delegates authority. I quote again, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, Paul, excuse me, is not in that verse is not condoning any abuse of power by the government. His point is not to justify everything that is done in the name of the government. His point is to establish the principle of government against those who may question whether any government has a right to exercise authority over Christians, even in the civil realm. So the remainder of that passage, Romans 13, 1-7, is full of practical instruction. Let me summarize Paul's argument and then close with a few conclusions of my own. Paul says, The government is established by God to reward good conduct and punish evil behavior. Those who do good should have no reason to fear the authorities. Why would he dare to describe the government and its leaders in these terms? Because, as he says, the government is God's servant to carry out God's purposes for order and good in society. Granted, not all governments regard themselves as God's servant, and even those who do sometimes act in ways that are inconsistent with the plan and purpose of God. When that happens, a higher principle applies in the lives of Christians, and we are obliged to disobey the government if submission to it would force us to violate the law of God. But in general, failure to give the government its proper regard is not only liable to punishment by the state, it's also morally wrong before God. Submission to the governing authorities, including in matters as mundane as paying taxes, is thus both a civil and religious duty. Governmental leaders are to be given honor and respect, not because they are powerful and influential, but because they serve at God's good pleasure and for God's own purposes. That's Paul's argument. And now for a few conclusions of my own. Five, in fact. One. God is a God of order, authority is needed for maintaining order, and all authority comes from God. Two, Christians live as citizens of two realms, an earthly nation and the kingdom of God. Three, the two realms are not equal. When Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto unto God the things that are God's, he was not putting Caesar on a par with God. Four, Christians are expected to be model citizens of both realms until and unless submission to the earthly realm and the rule of government would require us to do something that violates the law and will of God. And five, in Romans 13, 1-7, Paul was not addressing all the exceptions that might arise. He was outlining the general principles that should ordinarily guide our discipleship in the area of relating to the government. Somewhere I read a statement, I don't even remember the author, that has come back to me time and time again as I put these thoughts together this week. That writer said, people want to be lightly governed by strong governments. People want to be lightly governed by strong governments. I think that's true. As a kid, didn't you want your dad to be strong enough to do anything But when he dealt with you, you wanted him to be gentle and tender. 
We all want a police force that's powerful enough to keep the peace in any situation, but made up of police persons who are gentle enough to help a kid find her parents when she gets lost in a crowd. So, we want to be lightly governed by a strong government. That is, after all, how God governs. God Almighty, the omnipotent ruler of the universe, is the one who, in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, invites us in the words of today's Gospel reading, Come unto me, the Almighty ruler of the universe, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so, on this the eve of the 4th of July, 2011, our thoughts turn toward our nation, its government, and our privileges and responsibilities as citizens, both of this nation and of the kingdom of God. Most of the time, being a faithful citizen of God's kingdom will mean being a model citizen of this nation. And we should pray fervently that the time never comes when we're forced to make a choice between the two. But if, God forbid, that time should come, we have in history numerous great examples to follow, and I'm closing with the example of one, Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John and Bishop of Smyrna in the early 2nd century. For all of his long life of nearly 90 years, he honored the authority of Rome, until at last Rome asked him for more honor than he could even give to Jesus Christ his Lord. The Christian historian Eusebius has written a detailed account of the final hours of Polycarp's life. Let me paraphrase. The Roman proconsul asked, Are you Polycarp? He answered, I am. The proconsul said, Then swear to Rome and I will set you free. Deny Christ. And Polycarp responded, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? Then I will throw you to the wild beasts. Call them. If you make light of the beasts, I'll have you destroyed by fire, unless you change your attitude. The fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about, the fire of judgment to come. Still, do what you must. The proconsul was amazed and sent the crier to stand in the middle of the arena and announce three times, Polycarp has declared that he is a Christian. The crowd roared in unison each time, then let him be burned alive. As the wood was laid around his feet, Polycarp lifted his voice and prayed. O Father, thy blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know thee, the God of angels and powers and all creation, and of the family of the righteous who live in thy presence, I bless thee for counting me worthy of this day and hour, that in the number of the martyrs I might partake of Christ's cup, to the resurrection of eternal life of both soul and body, which the Holy Spirit makes imperishable. As soon as he pronounced the Amen, the fire was lighted and Polycarp gave up his life, defying the authority of Rome in order to be faithful to the one whose authority was greater. 
May God give us grace so that in a similar situation, we might do likewise. Amen. You have just been listening to Come and See. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to come and see.